Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. Our broadcast today features a conversation recorded in front of a live audience, and it featured four financial services executives. They were Citizens Bank Chief Information Officer and Head of Technology Services, Michael Rutledge, Comerica Bank Chief Operations and Technology Officer, Megan Crespi, Ally Bank Chief Information, Data and Digital Officer, Satish Muthukrishnan, and Truist Chief Information Officer, Scott Case. Each provided a lens into innovation being driven in their companies. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So during the past couple of years, uh, one of the industries that's been uh, most dynamic and most innovative uh, and been both pushed to as well as uh, driven a tremendous amount of change has been the financial services industry. It's been remarkable to, to, to witness as customers, as, uh, as friends and collaborators of people in the industry. And I'm so grateful for uh, the leaders who've joined today to talk a bit about their own experiences during these dynamic times. You know, there've been remarkable changes to customer expectations uh, and a focus on customer experience in, in some new ways has been an emphasis certainly across the industry. Uh, omni-channel approaches and meeting customers where they wish to be met has become sacrosanct as well. Uh, of course, this is an industry that also has helped businesses and individuals during great trying times, as of course, these have been very difficult times for so many uh, in our country and around the world as well. And these are leaders who, have, of course, have fostered and facilitated um, a lot of the aid towards those in need. Uh, data certainly is a strategic weapon in this industry as much as any, and very much looking forward to understanding the ways in which uh, data has been harnessed in some really creative and important ways uh, across the stories we'll tell today. The war for talent, I mean, this is something that impacts, of course, all industries. But uh, I've been inspired by the stories uh, uh, that multiple of the executives here have, have uh, told me in terms of the, some of the tactics that they have used in order to uh, invest in people and keep the best people within their organizations. That's obviously the, the most important first step in the war for talent is to keep the great talent you already have. Diversity, equity, and inclusion has rightfully had renewed emphasis across the past couple of years. And again, there are some good stories to tell here as well. These are just a few of the trends and interesting topics, at least in my, to my mind, that we'll cover through this conversation. And again, I'm so grateful for the leaders who have uh, who've joined me today. Uh, welcome to all of you. And thank you again so much for, for taking time for this, uh, this conversation today. You know, uh, maybe Michael, I'll begin with you. Michael Rutledge, as I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, the, the Chief Information Officer and Head of Technology Services uh, at Citizens Financial. He's joining from Rhode Island today. Uh, Michael, great to see you. Thank you so much for, for taking time. I mentioned the importance of people. You know, this is, as I've now gotten out and about in recent months to gather over intimate dinners in a variety of, of cities across the country and uh, facilitated conversations with a lot of, a lot of folks, yourself included, uh, in Boston not so long ago. This is one of those topics, the war for talent, uh, the, 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 the implications of the great resignation, as some call it. Uh, you know, people are, of course, our most important asset and keeping our best people is such an important thing during these times. And one of the stories that has been very inspiring for me is this remarkable in-house engineering academy that you have built, uh, as, as I, I presumably both from the, the perspective of investing in your people and making that very clear, but obviously, of course, the fruit of that being uh, building the skills of tomorrow and creating a team that is uh, ready to seize the opportunities of tomorrow as well. Can you talk a little bit about the construct of that and some of the topics that you've included in the uh, in-house in engineering academy? Absolutely, Peter, and uh, thanks for the uh, for the question. Yeah, certainly, uh, workforce transformation has been a key part of our journey 
at citizens to really introduce the next generation of technology. And, and really, we have a sort of two-pronged approach. Uh, as you talked about, one is, uh, frankly, training and reskilling our existing uh, technologists. Uh, and secondly, embarking on a, a you know, pretty significant hiring program and then marrying the two. So you have that subject matter expertise of the applications, but at the same time, you're bringing in people who are familiar with where we're moving to in terms of the technology. So let me start with the upskilling program. Um, we introduced what we call engineering academies. And these were hands-on coding academies, nine weeks. The first week was well, university learning, if you like. But the next nine weeks was where they built code. And in fact, some of that code is now in production, right? They used... You know, we like to say that we, we drank our own champagne, right? They, they use the DevSecOps pipeline. They use some of the new database technologies. They used automated testing. Um, and through that program, they, they come out practitioners. Now, this could have been mainframe programmers who in our legacy systems wanted to transition into the distributed world. It could have been engineers who had computer science degrees, frankly, but hadn't really used that muscle. Um, we've really been pivoting away from a largely vendor, contractor-based uh, uh, you know, uh, talent pool to leverage much more in-house um, engineering, uh, engineering talent. Um, and coupled with that, our colleagues have taken over 600 different badges across 38 different disciplines, ranging from the cloud to APIs and microservices to the data lake. Um, to testing, uh, et cetera, et cetera, which has also been really, uh, really well received uh, by our team. Um, secondly, when it comes to hiring, you know, we've, we've hired over 500 uh, architecture, infrastructure, and, and software engineers over the last two and a half years. These are all colleagues. And, you know, a large, large piece of that success would be from referrals. So, in fact, 33% of those hires have been in, in you know, internal referrals. As we started that hiring, started at the leadership level, hiring, frankly, leaders that can code. You know, people like Satish Mutakrishnan who's on the call with me today, right? He can roll up his sleeves, he can code. So that's where we started from, you know. And then uh, we really focused on our diversity of hiring as well. We've actually hired 33% uh, female hires and actually over 80% people of color. And we did that by, we, we, we pivoted from our traditional, frankly, New England schools. We still hire from them. They're critical to our success. But we broadened it and started hiring from uh, Atlanta and different schools around the country, from schools in Florida, from schools in Arizona, et cetera, et cetera. And we partnered also with some boutique engineering companies who actually take people from non-traditional backgrounds, assess them with that they have the computer aptitude, and then they put them through 16-week boot camps themselves, and then they're placed on our account. And we found through that we're able to, to attract um, you know, a much more diverse uh, workforce, which has been really, uh, really exciting for us.
That's, that's extraordinary stories. I really appreciate you sharing those, Michael. And I, I want to actually bring Megan into the conversation as well. Megan, you are someone who is also uh, at Comerica, put a lot of thought into the, the second point that Michael raises, the, the DE&I, and thinking about um, bringing in much more diverse talent than has traditionally been the, the norm within IT organizations. Talk a bit about some of the methods that you have used, if you don't mind, in order to accomplish some of those important uh, uh, feats as well. Yeah, great. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for uh, having me today. Um, I can't overemphasize everything that Michael just said. Um, really critical um, to offer the kinds of, you know, upskilling, reskilling programs for your existing staff. It keeps people energized. It keeps people focused on the future. We call that future-ready talent. We talk about drinking our own Kool-Aid. I think I'd like to up that a little bit to drinking our own champagne, as Michael described. So that's a new idea for me. But, but really the idea of, you know, taking the people who have the talent that brought us here to this point in our 173-year heritage here at Comerica Bank um, and thinking about that next chapter in the evolution, marrying that up with a combination of folks from the outside. These would be people who have done it elsewhere who may know what good looks like on some of the things that we aspire to do more of in the future, uh, who can help us accelerate uh, a bit. And then it's also finding new pipelines of talent. I mean, I think we would all agree, um, you know, cross industry, frankly, this isn't just financial services and it's not even just tech, right? With the great resignation now called the great reshuffling, whatever you might wanna call it. The reality is there just isn't enough talent ready today to fill all of the demands that this evolution of customer expectations is really driving. So, you know, for us, it's about expanding those talent pipelines, thinking differently about where we seek talent. So certainly uh, the on-campus programs and expanding the reach there, partnerships with HBCUs, uh, community colleges and the markets that we serve and, and so on. But it's also thinking about diversity. You mentioned DE&I earlier. Uh, certainly at the heart of kind of our core values here at Comerica is diversity. Think about ways to, you know, to improve the way we think about uh, reaching out to latent talent in the marketplace. What I mean by that is, is you know, partnerships here in, in Metro Detroit, where I am, the Exceptional Academy, which really focuses on uh, providing certifications uh, in Cisco products, for example, uh, and in some other uh, kind of technologies for entry-level cybersecurity uh, types of roles for differently uh, kind of neurodiverse uh, and differently abled uh, candidates. We've had a great partnership there and it's just beginning, uh, but we've really uh, enjoyed kind of both the mentoring that we've been able to do as well as seeking that pipeline of talent, both for our internships and early talent programs as well as for permanent positions. Um, Step It Up America is another one that we have a partnership with. You may not be familiar with that one, Peter, you may, uh, but that's around uh, veterans, people uh, who have served in our military, uh, serving in, again, entry-level roles, uh, developing exposure uh, to cybersecurity principles, as well as to technology uh, through skilling programs, uh, and then on-the-job training uh, that we can uh, provide as part of that partnership. So those might be some examples of things that we're thinking about to really expand that pool. That's great. Uh, thank you both for the the overview of all you're doing, but also the specifics of, of organizations that you're partnering with to bring that to life, Megan. That's really great. Um, Satish, I'd like to turn to you, if I may. Um, 
So, so as I mentioned before, you are the Chief uh, Information, Data, and Digital Officer of Ally. And yours is an institution that, though not born digital, this is the uh, old uh, GMAC, uh, in rebranding and, and uh, going through its transition, has really emphasized being a digital first bank. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, some of the steps uh, that, that have been undertaken du- during your tenure, even prior to your tenure, to bring that to life, this whole sort of burning of the ships moment of, of representing and demonstrating for folks that the future is digital. How, how do you bring that to life in an institution that was born prior to the digital age? Yeah, what a fantastic question. Thank you, Peter. And it's phenomenal to see some of the familiar faces here uh, and, and the leaders and the journey that they're taking on. Um, it is what I call two conflicting forces pulling you on opposite sides to satisfy what you just asked. Um, why we, we have a greater than a hundred year heritage, the bank was born digitally and it was born as a deposits arm to our uh, hundred year old auto loan um, and, and the dealer relationship business. But what we had to do was quickly make sure that we started to expand on what was born as a deposit engine because of the customer satisfaction that we started to obtain. And we had over 95% and we continue to have over 95% uh, retention rate with our customers. We had 90% satisfaction rate from our customers who were calling in to get us to do something. But all of that was more of an analog interaction. How do you convert that to digital? And that's why I said, while we were focused on human-centered service, we were focused on customer obsession, we had to quickly pivot into this engine that was born as deposit and expanded to high growth business, whether it was your transaction account, whether it was mortgage, whether it was insurance, auto loans, um, point of sale lending, and now adding credit card to it. And as we started to expand, we had to introduce technology and almost technology had to lead the vision of how customers would be served in the digital environment. Um, and I'll give you one quick example of how we did that. Our, our, our bot, which did not have a proper name, we called it Ally Assist, instead of giving it a single name, um, to expose to customers that you are actually interacting with a bot, but we are going to try our best to make sure that we're replicating the service that 90% of you thought was great. And we focused on what we called high, um, high value and high velocity interactions, and which was our 6% of the intents. And we converted those to bot interaction end-to-end. We reached an industry-leading 60% containment. And what that did was it, it reproduced that interaction, but in a way it was conven- convenient for our customers to interact with us anytime they chose to interact with us. And it also unleashed capacity with our customer care reps to focus on more complicated problems. And, and what, that, what that did was uh, 95% of the interactions after we started expanding the intents, we started with six, now we are up to 22% intents. We saw 95% of our customers interact with us digitally as we started rolling out those capabilities. And, and part of maturing this process also to ensure that we go, don't go back to our old ways of doing things and constantly remind and challenge us that customers need flexibility in terms of when they communicate with us 
and they need simplicity in terms of how we roll out those capabilities. So uh, we constantly read the voice of consumer and make sure we take that into account as we roll out new digital capabilities. Great, great overview. I want to stick with you for just a moment longer, if I may, Satish. Um, several of the executives here certainly have data under their purview. You have it in your title as well as the Chief Information Data and Digital Officer at Ally. Talk a bit about your data program. You know, this is an area of, of tremendous emphasis, not only in this industry, across industries, as we have an opportunity to pull a lot of your peers across major institutions and enterprises. This continues to be among the, the, the top, if not the top topic in its various variations um, uh, you know, across the executives that we poll. Talk a bit about, um, if you can give a thumbnail sketch to a very complex topic, admittedly, some of the ways in which you're contemplating leveraging data as a, as a differentiating factor. As you yourself have captured astutely and observed, Peter, data is making a comeback. It started off with big data. People started creating these large lakes, bringing all the data together and found out how complicated and, and how disorganized soon it might become before you capture value for all the data that is centralized. So what we did was we sort of flipped the funnel and we said, let's capture the use cases that are required for the businesses that is going to add maximum value and create return on investment within one year. So I can go and ask for money. So when we flip, the, flip that chart off, let me start with the use case and let's figure out what capabilities are required for those use case and what data is required to be centrally collected for that use case. It challenged all of us and it forced us into prioritization. And in some cases, it also led us to figure out what is the simplest use case that we can implement to prove this out. And of the 160 or so use cases that were first initially targeted to centralize all the data that is required for it, we mapped it to just the five use cases and the five or six capabilities that are required and the essential tool set required to unleash that use case and then the, the, the data. What it did was it helped us build muscle to move fast, show value and capture value for across businesses and functions. And it became easier for us to tell the story. Once you showed them a success of one or two use cases, we created this pull factor across the organization instead of the push factor. And people started talking about how successful it was. And, and that in a nutshell, without going into the details is how we are exploring our data strategy and finding success with it. That's great. Thank you for that overview, Satish. Scott Case, I'd like to turn to you. You are the Chief Information Officer of Truist and have been from the beginning of the formation of that company, uh, which was forged through the merger of equals, bringing BB&T and SunTrust operations together. That happened in late 2019 and thus just before the pandemic. And I can only imagine the complexity of managing that integration of, of two major organizations uh, during a time where, at least for, for large stretches, you weren't able to, to be together in person. Certainly, that would have been the optimal scenario and the expected scenario during prior times. Talk a bit about how you led that integration at a time when physical proximity wasn't possible. Peter, hey, thank you. It's good to be here. And thanks for the invitation today. Uh, yeah, so to your point, the, the, our timing, I'm not sure if it was good or not, but we, we announced the merger rate before the, the pandemic announced itself. And, uh, you know, I, I think the, the good news is that our teams collectively, even prior to the pandemic, were, um, you know, used to working virtually, obviously, in the technology and operations world, that's that's not a abnormal thing. Um, 
You know, I think I think there were some key aspects, though, for us to, to begin the journey on the merger as the pandemic hit. Um, I'd say the most important thing was we grounded really quickly on uh, our purpose as, you know, forming a new company, Truist. We were able to uh, declare a new purpose, uh, bringing two companies together to inspire and, and build better lives and communities. That was a, 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 a definitely a rallying cry for all of our teammates uh, that really, I think, helped us persevere through through the pandemic, especially the early stages. You know, we we like many of my colleagues on the call today. We we all pivoted hard uh, to enable um, you know new ways of working, uh, exploring different different platforms and technologies to allow for you know collaboration on a virtual level. Um, and also, I, I think the other thing we did really well early on is we were clear about uh, prioritizing the merger was the most important thing. Uh, but as I think you even you know, alluded to earlier, uh, within 30 days of the pandemic really taking hold, we were also as an industry working hard to support clients uh, through the, the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP. So, you know, every time we had a challenge, we, we sort of doubled down on purpose client experience, client focus. Um, and at the same time, we also were enabling our business partners to, to work differently. We moved, I think, roughly two thirds of our company into a virtual work mode um, uh, almost overnight. But again, I, I don't think that's unique to Truist. I think that's uh, every one of my colleagues I've talked to had a sim similar experience. So, you know, I think it's through a use of uh, purpose, defined culture, client experience at the forefront, and then good technology solutions through those enabling capabilities and that kind of cultural focus we really uh, i think that helped us persevere and speaking of culture you really focused a lot on developing a culture of innovation um and, and i mean think about the, the the complexities of the cultural elements of what you've led bringing people together who by definition were two different cultures trying to forge a a single culture that leverages the strengths of each and in so doing on top of that fostering a culture of innovation that no doubt in its own way was in each of those organizations previously. So not necessarily bringing it up from its, its nascent stages, but talk a bit about how you did just that. Uh, yeah, again, I'll, I'll focus on um, a, a few a few things or more of our mindset. I'll start there and then I'll, I'll reference a, a, a physical uh, space that we've built out that, that sort of, I think, are something we want to talk about on a go forward basis for Truist. Uh, called our Innovation and Technology Center. Um, you know, I think from a mindset standpoint, philosophically, again, we started with purpose, creating a new company through this merger, leveraging all the great prior work done for both heritage companies, mission, very mission-focused, purpose-oriented companies already. Um, we, we, we declared an intent to be focused on, on really three things, uh, and, and it kind of boiled down into um, a really simple formula and, and those three things are, are touch plus technology equals trust. So we, we internally kind of reference that as our T3 strategy. Uh, you know, I think, I think that when you dive into what does it actually mean day to day for our teammates uh, and, and hopefully for our clients, it's all about design centered client experience type thinking, right? So we really have, have taken our purpose, our T3 strategy and started to develop new ways of working uh, with business partners, with technologists, with operations, with functional partners, all collaborating through a new framework that we've created to do really design thinking, uh, to do more research, client experience oriented research, 
And then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we've we've had an, an incredible opportunity through this merger to build out, actually in our corporate headquarters in Charlotte, um, new space, which we've called the Innovation and Technology Center, uh, where within this space, we get to practice every day, uh, research, design thinking, um, things that, again, most of my colleagues on this call would be familiar with, but journey rooms uh, as an expression to bring together cross-functional teams, put the client physically and virtually in the center of that of that room, so to speak, um, and then and then build an engineer solutions that meet their expectations and needs. So we, we've really gone from philosophical cultural statements early on in our merger experience all the way down to, uh, you know, a couple hundred thousand foot physical expression of an innovation and technology center that candidly, we don't want to stop there either. We intend to export that experience of and culture of innovation across the whole company. But physically, that's been a, 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 pretty, a pretty cool start to our journey is true is to have that physical space uh, to kind of anchor on. I really appreciate that overview, Scott. Michael, I'd like to go back to you, if I may. We've begun to talk about in a variety of different uh, parts of the conversation, um, customer experience and uh, expectations that are that are continuing to change among customers of the financial services industry. And you've noted in our past conversations the necessity to think of automation as a key to deliver uh, to delivering frictionless experience uh, for customers. Talk a bit about some of the methods you've used to bring that to life and the the, the fruit of that, if you will. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great question. Thank you, Peter. You know, I think, listen, the pandemic fueled this unprecedented migration to digital channels, right, that we've all, we've all seen. Um, at the same time, you know, when you look at our strategy, we still think it's important for physical experiences in the banks. But what we want, what we want to move to is more advice-based in the banks, in the actual physical branches, and you know more self-service capabilities, you know online, so that you know we can free up that time for people to focus uh, on that advice. And really, that's led us to really think through how can we leverage AI to to really reduce those assisted transactions to deliver more self-service capabilities. You know, deploy more automation in the back office to allow more straight through processing so our uh, you know colleagues don't have to to deal with with that and then we can we repositioning the sort of physical network to so to, to serve customers with advice and we're also leveraging ai there as well so you know we we built this system called checkup where people can go in and they can um, you know they can they can make an appointment at the, at the branch, but we use insights before they get to the branch to figure out well what they're really interested in and what maybe other offers from their primary relationships can we talk to them about to really serve them better. So you know that's allowing us to really grow um, our digital um, sales. In fact, last year we grew our digital sales by over forty percent. And one drive more self-service through our mobile app and leverages AI-driven insights to really help the customers really save and uh, you know spend more in, in, in an informed way. 
And, and were there some surprises as to the rapidity of adoption of self-service? I mean, yours is an industry, generally speaking, of course, still has physical branches, still has a very much a in-person component. Should that be the, the way in which a customer wishes to interact with the bank? Were you surprised by, by um, how quickly those solutions were adopted and, and the, the, the range of, of ages and types of clients who, who are willing to do so? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I think during the pandemic, you know, uh, the, the, the amount of people obviously walking into the branches really significantly decreased. And we had a very uh, strong adoption of, um, you know, of digital. But, but since then, it's come back and people are, uh, you know, coming into branches. In fact, even you, younger consumers, you know, still prefer to go into a branch as we've surveyed them to open an account, right? So I think it's important to have, um, certainly have both in your arsenal. It certainly is, you know, from, from um, our, you know, our perspective. But, you know, I think giving them mobile insights keeps customers coming back, right? They want to, they're interested in that. It really serves a, a different audience. And we've definitely, uh, we've definitely seen that. And to your point, we certainly saw some pretty rapid uh, adoption in that, and not only in the retail space, but in the commercial space as well. You think, um, you know, uh, bankers weren't traveling to go meet uh, clients, right? No one was traveling, so everything moved digitally, and you know, or everything moved to WebEx, and there was certainly really fast uh, adoption of that, similar to the type of things that that Scott uh, talked about in his remarks. Speaking of uh, customer expectations and, and meeting them, uh, Megan, I, I love the phrase that you use or the term that you use. You, you talk, you've spoken about uh, Amazoning customer expectations and financial services. Talk a bit about what you mean by that and also some of the unusual partnerships I know that you've uh, put together in order to deliver against that. Yeah, uh, I just laughed because it's a less eloquent way of describing what all of my my peers here on the panel today have, have articulated so well, but really just this idea of kind of the barriers to digital adoption that dissolved during the pandemic. And the fact that as people became more conversant with, you know, using their phones to do every last thing, you know, you use Amazon, you don't need to be trained within a few clicks, the thing you just thought of, you know, you've ordered, uh, the payment is, you know, integrated right there. Uh, and if you're lucky in some markets, it arrives on your doorstep within hours. We would never have imagined that even probably 36 months ago, let alone five years ago. And so, you know, as customers evolve, customers of all demographics uh, to using kind of their phones and using online means uh, for transactional things uh, and understanding the convenience that that brings, it's changed people's inherent perceptions of how long anything should take, how easy anything should be, the convenience factor to them of meeting them where they are, um, in my view, has really ramped up. The same time, you know, really to Michael's points, um, where you need specialized advice, where you need guidance, where you're making a big purchasing decision, where you don't, you know, you're starting a small business, uh, you're doing your first mortgage, you want more of that human interaction that can be delivered digitally, you know, through um, formats like this, right? Uh, embedding video into your online capabilities or physically in a more one-to-one -one branch setting. But this whole idea of thinking about the customer experience through the lens of 
all of the kinds of experiences our customers of today and tomorrow, our target customers, are having cross-industry with all of the things that they're doing uh, is sort of where it's at. I love that example, the cast the net more widely than just your traditional competitive set to draw inspiration. After all, the people who are using Amazon are customers of yours and the residue of the experience of what works well certainly colors the way in which they think about all experiences in, in some sure. way or another. I, what a great insight, Megan. Thank you so much for that. I wanted to also just stay, stay with you for a moment longer, if I may. Um, as others have mentioned as well, you know, there's, there's now an omni-channel approach, has been for some time, but, but the complexion of that and the extent to which people are delving into different parts, different channels, uh, and even mixing and matching as they go through their own journey um, is, is of interest. Talk a bit about how you have plotted these customer journeys across the different potential points of interaction to your point to make sure that you are meeting your customers where they wish to be met, as opposed to dictating to them that they must meet you, you know, as you you prefer. Yeah, it's it's really hard work, right? And it's it's tough to get it perfect. But again, from our experiences as customers of many different uh, platforms, many different types of businesses. We know that it's frustrating to have to explain to yet another person what you've just gone through, right? Or who you are or what your address is and to repeat information and so on. And so, you know, we understand that and are trying to take that on by ensuring that our data supports this sort of omni-channel, opti-channel approach to customer service. Um, and I think some of my peers have talked about this already. And you even mentioned, Peter, in your initial comments, I wrote it down data as a strategic weapon. You know, how you take data of what you know about your customers, uh, both in terms of background and situation, but also transactionally to present to them a unified front, cross-channel, cross-product, cross-service, uh, not really exposing your org chart to your customer, right? Oh, you happen to uh, have a mortgage with us, but you also happen to be a wealth management client. We need to know that by ensuring that our data is of high quality, that it's available to all within our company on this side of the fence to make sure that the optimal uh, customer experience is achieved. Tougher to do than what I've just described, but data is the key to that. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you again for, for, for those insights, Megan. Um, I want to go back to you, Scott, if I may. Uh, uh, in in uh, in preparing for for our conversation today, I was fascinated to to learn more about what you refer to as the digital straddle that you've developed as a significant part of your strategy, your digital and technology strategy. Describe what you mean by that and the value you you anticipate driving from it. Yeah, so the the digital straddle term uh, was born out of our our need for the merger uh, and during the merger activity, which took us you know, net net over a couple of years from sort of start to finish, uh, we, we chose to uh, uh, or wanted to have the ability to roll out our online banking mobile capabilities to be specific um, in batches and in, in waves to our clients uh, versus number one, making our clients wait for the end of the conversion when we got to target state systems to, to then allow for them to tap into the new platforms. Uh, so, so the straddle is is really our internal name for uh, our capability. We we devise, we leverage some partnerships, et cetera, and it's essentially a, a cloud API type framework that that we built. And the essence of it is it allowed us to to dip into each of our heritage or legacy 
uh, banking platforms, our core systems, and bring back through that type of architecture and platform the presentation of their data in real time, current transactions, et cetera, through the, the new digital wrapper, if you will. So it was really um, also a, a tool, not just for us to, to allow for client experience to start to happen during the merger and not wait for a big bang at the end, but, but candidly as a way to de-risk some of the, the, the merger, right? To allow our clients to start to see the new brand, have new experiences, um, transact in, in a truest client experience designed way uh, versus waiting waiting till core backend systems convert um, further on in the merger. So it was it was for both of those reasons, Peter, we designed uh, the straddle. You know, we, we, we were, uh, were pursuing patents, all that good stuff. So it's been exciting for our teams to see some real innovation applied for the purpose of the merger purposely or intentionally for client experience and from a risk management perspective come come to fruition. I love the duality of that. Thank you for for uh, sharing that, Scott, and the the implications you have both internally and externally. Uh, opportunity risk mitigation, um, the the many the many different uh, opportunities that that serves. Look, I, I, as I as I reflect on this really inspiring conversation, I I I can't help but thinking. You know, I've been working with uh, people who run technology and digital for uh, more than twenty five years now, and it seems like for so so much of that period, there was a. Uh, pontificators saying this was a role that was going to go away, CIO, CDO, CTO. Uh, and as we talk about now, the various places that great leaders like the ones who've joined me today influence customer experience, developing omni-channels and, and, and a multiple channel approach in which to interact with customers in the ways that they wish to interact best. Um, thinking about the technological lens, the digital lens that is so critically important in helping people, customers at their most critical points of need. Um, the, the extent to which they are uh, at the fulcrum point for their institutions and in helping uh, bring be better learning and recruiting and better better people into the fold as well. Just among a few things that we've spoken about across this great conversation, um, is there a better time to be a technology and digital leader? I don't think so, as this becomes more strategic, more critical to the way in which businesses do business. I hope you've, you've uh, drawn as much inspiration from this conversation uh, as I have. With that, I wanna uh, give my sincere thanks to Michael Rutledge, Megan Crespi, Scott Case, uh, Satish Muthukrishna, thank you all so much for joining me today and for the great insights that you shared. And thank you all uh, for joining us and, and listening into this conversation. All the best to you all. <laughs>